listeners, and welcome to another episode of the InQtel podcast. I'm your host, Vishal Sandacera, and on today's show, we discuss data science and privacy issues with Tommy Jones, who is a member of technical staff here at InQtel, but is a statistician by training who's been spending the last year looking into data science and privacy issues for InQtel. Say hi, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. Uh, well, let's get started. Um, Tommy, today we're going to talk a lot about uh, interesting words. Data science is one of the words. Data privacy is another uh, set of words. We've heard a lot about this stuff in terms of uh, consumers and data privacy protections and whatnot. Why don't you tell us and level set for us what these words even mean and why they might be important and who some of the cast of characters are that are involved when it comes to considering data and its privacy and security. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's best probably to get started with uh, the, the age-old question of, of what is data science, or at least what do I mean when I say data, data mm-hmm. science. There's, there's a really popular Venn diagram that was made by a data scientist named Drew Conway several years ago that shows data science as the intersection of math and statistics knowledge, uh, hacking skills or programming knowledge, and some sort of substantive subject matter expertise. And that's not a bad definition. Um, But more concretely, when I'm saying data science, I'm talking about things like uh, querying records in a database because you're trying to learn something, finding statistical patterns in data, building a machine learning model to predict something. You know, any one or all of those could be data science. Uh, Analyzing data to produce a report, also data science. Uh, So for the purposes of this conversation, like those are the things that I mean when I say data science. And then also it uh, probably would just be helpful for the rest of our discussion to think about uh, some of the common roles in sort of a data science pipeline because mm-hmm. um, that uh, really will illuminate some of these uh, later examples uh, when we get into them. So first and foremost, uh, you have something that uh, I would call subjects, and those are entities that are in uh, a database that you want to protect somehow. Uh, so those subjects could be people, like in the case of like a clinical trial or something like that. You have actual humans who have participated in this trial and you've collected data on them. Um, but it could be uh, something more abstract, like a relationship. Um, uh, it could be an address. It could be a phone number. Really, uh, when I'm saying subjects that we want to protect, that's really anything that is a record in the database that is somehow... Uh, some sort of like secret or private knowledge that you may not want to disclose to just anyone. Um, uh, Then another role to keep in mind is uh, a steward or a custodian. I'm lumping them into one bucket, but that's basically whoever it is that's that's charged with holding the data and uh, maintaining it or or keeping it safe and secure. Um, Then you're going to have an analyst, uh, and that analyst would be uh, what we might call a data scientist. Um, but uh, that is somebody who's going to be analyzing the data, producing that model, querying the database, writing that report, et cetera. Now, Tommy, uh, up until now, you've talked about subjects, custodians, and analysts. Are these folks typically housed within the same organization? Are they, can they be disparate from the organization? Well, they, they could be. Um, you know, uh, and actually, uh, so they could be members that are in different organizations. They could also be members um, of the same organization. Or uh, they could actually be the same person who's fulfilling different roles. Okay, I see. Yeah. Continue. Uh, Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, that's, that's quite all right. So actually your, your uh, question was well-timed because the next thing I was actually going to talk about is 
uh, a third-party service provider. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a person that in general would either be in a, studio, uh, a steward or custodian role or an analyst role, uh, but is a third-party, so somebody who's explicitly outside of whatever organization that you might be in for the purposes of this discussion. And then finally, the, 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 the last role as part of this data science pipeline uh, is the consumer. So in general, in data science, we talk about building these things called data products. And that data product could be a report, it could be a presentation, but it could also be uh, a web application or uh, an API or something like that. But it's, it's some endpoint of your data science, and then you have a consumer who is uh, actually consuming that endpoint. One last note on, on roles is, um, since this is a discussion about privacy, which leads itself to There's security, you, you have a bad guy, we're going to call him an adversary. And this adversary could actually literally be a bad guy who's somehow gotten into your system and then assumes the role of somebody who's in there. Or uh, it could be somebody who's in your organization who wittingly or unwittingly uh, has gained access to some sort of data or knowledge that they were not supposed to according to our policies or preferences. Okay. So let's talk a little, now that we know the cast of characters, let's talk a little bit about um, how, you know, what is it that data science uh, enables in order to preserve data privacy? So it turns out, um, I think in our previous discussions, Tommy, you and I have talked a lot about how data science is great, it's prevailing, it's everywhere. I mean, uh, as far as buzzwords go, data science is up there with like, you know, AI, machine learning, deep learning. Data scientists are the ones that are largely pra the practitioners of a lot of this type of new age stuff. Um, and largely, organizations aren't necessarily able to either find or pay for their own cadre of in-house data scientists. So as you sort of alluded to, it turns out third-party service providers are now being able to provide data science services. Um, so you can just contract or, or, or sort of pay by the service for data science. And, that, and I assume that that's what's enabling a lot of these data privacy technologies that, that you're going to talk to us about today. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I would say that they're enabling them, but it's, that's uh, really a big part in the mix. Uh, maybe rather than enabling, why don't we say that that's like the, the call to action yeah, here, it right? it requires it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, a data scientist, a good data scientist uh, or machine learning engineer or whatever we're going to call these folks these days, uh, they take a long time to train. And so but as, as a result, at least in this current age, uh, they're comparatively rare. And when you do get them, they're comparatively expensive. So that's led to this rise of what we're calling data science as a service. And that can be an external consultant. So I'm a consulting firm that just happens to have data scientists on staff. You hire me on a temporary basis to science your data, and then uh, I go away. Or it could be things like web services. So uh, I built an image recognition model. Uh, I expose it via API for a small fee. You can then send your... Uh, your images to my model, and then my, my model will tell you what's in them, uh, or, or anything in between. Interesting. Right? You've talked a lot about, uh, again, in previous discussions, when we sort of ideated on, on how we could talk about data science, you've talked a lot about full trust and partial trust, and you had a lot of insights in re relation to, A, what, what those even mean, and B, some of the trade-offs associated with, uh, say, adopting those type, sorts of technologies. Tell us, tell us about those. Sure. So um, I'd say the prevailing security model right now is what, what I'm calling a full trust model. Uh, meaning if uh, you're a data scientist and I want you to science my data, uh, I have to give you, I have to completely trust you 
because the only way to uh, get what you're offering me is for me to just give you the data or direct access, mm -hmm. which means that any one of those subjects that are contained in the data that I might consider to be sensitive are now exposed to you. So I have to give you that full trust for that to happen. And anything less than that full trust, then it's a very binary trade-off, right? I don't give you, you don't have that full trust, uh, therefore I'm not going to share the data, therefore I don't get whatever you're bringing to the table to get done with my data. Not as much data science can be done if there's partial trust, right. as say compared to full trust. Maybe uh, because you're withholding parts of the data, or perhaps you've done something to the data to make it less. I, I would actually say the other way around. This, mm -hmm. this full trust model raises the bar of trust so high that less data science gets done. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so if, um, if, if you don't meet that really high bar, then uh, no data science gets done because the data is locked away in my warehouse. So what is it that, how do you, how do you measure the trust? I mean, you, you mentioned full and you mentioned partial. Uh, what is it that makes something full trust and makes, like, how, is, how is a person able to be trusted fully versus only partially? Is it because they have some sort of software or maybe some sort of architecture in their, in their uh, data, data pipeline that lets you know, like, oh, this person I can totally trust with my data versus not? Yeah, well, I mean, so to be honest, that's actually more of a philosophical question than a technical one, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what what you're alluding to there is sort of this this partial trust model, which means uh, if I trust you a little bit, uh, I can leak a little bit of information to you uh, and then still get a, a, at least a partial benefit of what uh, it is that you're offering. And, and in many cases, uh, with, with some of the technology that enables a partial trust uh, data security model. I can get uh, most of what you would have to offer uh, even without me having to trust you the whole way. But, you know, to your question of, like, how do I quantify that trust or something like that, um, you know, that's that's really more, I, I guess at this point I'd say it's a judgment call, right? Like, I just need to call out what information do I think I'm leaking to you? Is that okay for me to leak that bit of information? So I'll give you one specific example before getting into maybe more uh, of a deep dive. But um, if I'm preparing a report for public dissemination that has a table of data in it, uh, I have to you know, make this judgment call that it's okay to put whatever's in that table out into the public where anyone could see it, right? So it's not like this partial trust model is something that's like brand new that we have to think about it. We're actually already thinking about it all the time. It's just that now, uh, because you know technologies are enabling this at a lower level, uh, I, I, I get to think about it more often right. than, than I would have otherwise, where it's like, oh, this is just some public endpoint I have to think about. Makes sense. Tommy, you, you've taken us philosophically, because, probably because of the way I've asked the question, uh, about some of the trade-offs associated with full and partial trust. Uh, let's talk about a specific example. Um, you've done a lot of research uh, as it relates to the financial uh, industry in terms of data privacy. Walk us through how these these uh, trust models uh, are used in, in a financial setting. Okay, sure. So uh, we actually have several examples, but uh, let's take them one at a time. Um, so in, in, in this first example, uh, let's say you're preparing uh, a report for public release um, uh, every month. And let's say this report is on the financials of your organization. And, and just to drill down and make things like hyper, hyper, hyper concrete, um, let's say one specific thing you want to release is the total amount you spent on payroll over the last month. Okay. So let's think about uh, what has to happen and who you have to trust uh, to be able to produce and release that report. Okay. okay. So ostensibly I've got uh, this, this payroll data sitting in a database somewhere. 
and I need some sort of analyst, whether it's somebody in my organization or a third-party service provider, to get access to those data to then be able to tabulate what were the total out outlays of, uh, for payroll over that month. Uh, they're going to then compile that into a report that is then going to get released to the public to a whole bunch of consumers who will then read that report, okay? okay. So who do I have to trust here? So step one, uh, I have to trust my stewards and custodians because they're the ones who are uh, holding uh, the data themselves. Uh, I have to trust that analyst because they have to have access to the data uh, to be able to compile that statistic and put it in that report. And then I, I actually have to have uh, some trust for the data consumers, the wider public. Um, I might be trying to protect every single person's individual salary, so why does reporting an aggregate um, create some sort of risk for the public as a whole? Well, um, if we're releasing this report every month, and I happen to know that a particular person was hired in my organization over one month, I could just take the report from the month after they were hired and the report from the month before they were hired and take the difference. And uh, that difference would actually give me that person's pay. Uh, and so by using things like that, I can actually reveal specific personally identifiable information about an individual that we were trying to keep secret by this aggregate. Right. The, the, the assumption here is that the consumer uh, has some prior knowledge of, hey, I know when this person started, and I know that I have, uh, and you also have the, the report from the month before and the month after. Um, so it seems as though there'd be like a, almost like a gradient of trust in, in terms of, hey, you might have the most trust in your custodians, still partial perhaps, uh, and then you still have trust, but maybe like even less partial when it comes to the consumer of the data, it just in terms of well, what, what is it that they know that they could combine this report with to do something else that's unintended uh, with this report and, uh, and subsequent reports. Tommy, I think I'm getting a pretty clear picture on sort of how full trust and partial trust matter uh, and how they're different. How is it that technology helps with this particularly? How is it that you can enable partial trust by using technology? What exists right now? Right, well, uh, so in this particular use case, uh, one piece of technology that would, ha would help, or, or I should say a, a technology area, is something called differential privacy. Um, what differential privacy is, um, is a, actually a mathematical definition of privacy. And this might seem to like dive into the weeds a little bit, but what that definition allows you to do is um, add noise to data or computations on data in a way that gives you sort of provable guarantees around how much privacy you have preserved or given up for a particular operation to, to somebody. So in, in this particular case, if uh, your analyst was interacting with your database in a differentially private way, when they calculate that total payroll, they're going to get something that is statistically accurate, uh, meaning like on average it's the right number, but uh, that one particular time they say add up all of the salaries, it's not going to be exactly what your total salaries were. Mm -hmm. And it's done in such a way, this, this definition, so that it preserves the privacy of, of any one record in, in sort of an arbitrary way. So if I try and do, uh, as a consumer, to take uh, a difference between two months' salaries, I'm not going to end up with a meaningful number. So... Um, uh, if if I do take uh, those those two months' salary, say I'm trying to uncover your salary, right? Yeah. Uh, and I know when you were hired in this organization and all of that, I'm going to get a number, but it's not going to be the right number. I see. 
And so if you're using differential privacy, maybe in this case, you want to actually advertise that you're using differential privacy so anyone knows that like- They the, can't trust any of their happy embers. Right, like yeah, yeah. They, they're not going to be able to trust what, what they get out of it. Um, but there are other use cases where you, you might be able to think of where you might not want to publish it because maybe you actually do want to provide some disinformation. Right. Uh, probably not in the specific example, but you know that's one other dimension to think about. Makes sense. Tommy, you talked about differential privacy in terms of, uh, in two sort of nuanced ways. One was adding noise to data, and one was adding noise to computation. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the difference or maybe the preference of one over the other, especially if you're considering things like data set integrity? Sure. Yeah. So in, in uh, uh, cybersecurity, they, they have something called the CIA triad, which is what you're trying to preserve on all your data. So C is confidentiality, or that's sort of the privacy that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. um, I is integrity, uh, which is to say that like it's whatever numbers or records you have in the database, they are the right ones. And then uh, A, is, of course, is availability, meaning I, I can the people that need to access the data are able yeah, to access it. Yeah. Um, but going back to this adding noise to data or a computation on data, um, that if you're adding noise to the data itself, um, that can really set off some red flags for some of the people who are uh, charged with preserving the integrity of the data, right? So um, in many cases when we talk to uh, uh, companies who are offering differentially private or differential privacy solutions, They'll, they'll really go to pains to make a distinction between there because what they're trying to emphasize to uh, people who might be buying their product is that like we are not going to hurt your data. Right. Instead, we're adding the noise at the computation phase, so it's really just masking something from the analyst, but the data itself is still preserved in place, and it is what it should be. Makes sense. I can tell you from, from sort of my cursory research on, on all this sort of stuff um, that a lot of this stuff has been around in academics for a very long time. Research, a lot of research has been done uh, into differential privacy. Uh, it's certainly not, not completely new, at least in the research realm. Uh, same thing can be said for uh, homomorphic encryption. What is it that makes, makes why, why are companies interested in, in sort of providing solutions uh, in this space and now? What, what has changed over the last, I don't know, say year, two years, three years, whatever you want to call it, that makes, uh, the transition from all this stuff in the in, in sort of academia into commercial space compelling or, or, or relevant at this point in time. Right. Well, so uh, you know, a few things have changed, right? So one, you know, uh, uh, research continues. Things get better. They they get closer to something that could be commercially viable. So that's one issue. Two, I, I think it's it's worth looking at uh, some of the uh, uh, market or financial incentives uh, or, or legal incentives actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, that have been historically in place that are changing now. So historically, uh, a lot of the, what I would say, privacy-preserving uh, technologies and techniques were really more about limiting liability rather than actually pre preventing some sort of privacy breach. That's not to say that people were willy-nilly saying, like, I don't care about uncovering your data, but it, it was more along the lines of, look, I have a checklist. If something happens, I need to be able to show that I followed that checklist so that I'm not liable uh, for whatever damage may have happened. Right. Act of God, I'm sorry, right? Um, what's, uh, what's changed has been uh, some laws like uh, GDPR in Europe, which is actually very wide in scope, so it affects far more than just Europe. Right. And then we've also got things like the uh, California, I believe it's called the Consumer Privacy Act. Um, That's right. And uh, for our listeners who may not, I, I, I can certainly... Uh, speak for myself when I say it. I've heard a lot about GDPR. It's been around uh, since I think May of 2018, um, and the California Consumer Privacy Act is something that's 
from what I can tell, uh, something very similar based for you know, California-based subjects. Uh, we talked about this concept or this definition of a subject, which is, you know, and in this case, a person who's based in California who has data attributes that would need to be protected under the, uh, the constructs of this Privacy Act. Uh, but similar to GDPR, it seems like this is the California Consumer Privacy Act um, offers things like, you know, consumers have a right to know what information is collected and why. They have a right to uh, request a deletion of any sort of personal data, and they also have the right to uh, have access to readily, readily usable or portable um, you know, exports of their data on third-party platforms. Um, so you're suggesting that things like GDPR, things like the California Consumer Privacy Act, and I suppose we'll, we'll like to have more of these coming to protect different subjects from different parts of the world, if, if this if previous indicators uh, hold true, are, are, are at least one motivation for sort of the transition from academia to viable commercial technologies. Right, yeah. So, I mean, by, by changing the law and changing um, uh, what companies uh, have to do or, or uh, should do, uh, you change a little bit of that incentive away from uh, pure liability prevention and more towards prevention. Um, but but that's, just, that's just one thing that's changed. So another thing that's changed has been, um, so the, uh, there's been several high-profile privacy breaches as well. Um, so we've got Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. We've got Equifax. There was a big target breach. And in fact, even just in December of 2018, uh, there was this big breach uh, uh, with Marriott, and a lot of people's records got uncovered that way. Right. Um, there's been a lot of privacy breaches in the past, so uh, what seems to be changing there? Well, what seems to be changing is that uh, this is becoming uh, 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 an issue that's gotten attached to the popular consciousness, right? So, uh, you know, data and cybersecurity geeks may have been tracking this stuff for years, but only very recently has this become like there's been like some popular uproar around this. And what that means is that not only is the law changing, you know, some of the social norms around data may be changing as well. Um, and I can just say uh, in general that in my conversations with, with some of the startups that I've had here, I've had several companies bring up like, uh, you might be wondering uh, how we protect privacy in our underlying data set, right. and let me tell you what we're doing X, Y, and Z. You know, that, that didn't used to be the case. It used to just be viewed as, you know, privacy breaches were like a necessary evil to be able to get some sort of like data science goodness. Now uh, we have these companies that are at pains from like day one to say how they're going to protect data, and that, that's, that's a big difference. Yeah, I, I, from a consumer standpoint, I think we're paying a lot more attention. Tommy, thank you for your time. Before we close today, what do you want to leave our listeners with? We've talked a lot about partial trust, full trust. We've talked about some of the trade-offs associated with uh, conducting data science in those two environments. What do you want to leave our listeners with when it comes to perhaps a, a useful tidbit to apply in their daily life? Um, you know, a great next step for everyone, uh, whether you're a data scientist or somebody charged with uh, protecting data or even just a business leader, is to sit down and think about what your organization could do in this partial trust world. Tommy Jones, thank you so much for your time. Again, we've been listening to Tommy talk today to us about uh, data science and data privacy. If you want to learn more, you can go to IGT.org. I'm your host, Vishal Sandacera. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.